Welcome to Economic Frontiers from MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy. I'm Andre Fratkin, and today our guest is Shane Greenstein of Harvard Business School. Shane has recently written and published a book called How the Internet Became Commercial, Innovation, Privatization, and the Birth of a New Network. We discuss many topics, including the misleading story that government designed the internet, the idea of internet exceptionalism, in which businesses believe that the normal rules of making profit do not apply, and why diversity of platforms is important for the health of the internet. Welcome to the show, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get started. Uh, the first thing that I wanted to ask you about was uh, what uh, led you to write this book. So why is it interesting how the internet became commercial? Uh, there are a couple of different things that motivated the book. Uh, if you look at the internet and look at what actually happened in the 1990s, the events were extraordinary. The internet went from almost no users in 1994 to half of the households in the United States in 2001. It went from almost no users in business to close to 90% of all medium and large-scale business establishments in the United States by the year 2000. That's extraordinary. Uh, it puts it in the same league as electricity, indoor plumbing, some of the, the big, great, technologically-led changes in the 200-year history of capitalism. That, in and of itself, merited attention. In addition... I've gotten a little older, I have some children, I talk to them about what happened, and they have no idea. I talk to other academics, people who are well-schooled in lots of history, history of the airplanes, history of steelmaking. They have no idea. Uh, but I was there, I, I happened to have been very close to a lot of these events, and I thought I had an obligation to record it for history. Uh, so th those were some of the primary motivations. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I personally learned a lot from uh, reading the book, even though I am very much engrossed in the internet, and I would have thought that uh, I knew a lot of this stuff by now. Yeah, no one has put any. No one has actually put everything together into one place. That that was one of the motives. Um, it, I, I often say that there's very little in this book that. Uh, someone didn't know. Uh, on the other hand, you would have to be scouring the internet for uh, months on end in order to integrate it all together. And so uh, I could do a service for uh, readers by putting it all together. Let's get to the content of the book. Uh, one of the things that you talk a lot about is the belief of internet exceptionalism and uh, why it is misguided. So can you please explain what internet exceptionalism is and uh, uh, why, why it is not correct. <laughs> oh, this is a very common view. You find it in the entrepreneurial sector, especially uh, that the uh, economics of the Internet follows its own unique trajectory uh, of no relationship whatsoever to any historical example that's ever come before it. This is mistaking uh, hype for reality. <laughs> the Internet, and the commercial Internet in particular, uh, retained a lot of uh, characteristics that made it resemble other major technologies uh, and resembled the commercialization of other major technological deployments. I wanted to stress 
that many of the patterns that we observed uh, during the 1990s resembled other major technical deployments such as automobiles, electricity, hybrid corn, um, some of the classic examples. Uh, and uh, throughout the book, I try to make a lot of effort in uh, identifying economic archetypes, that is, uh, patterns of behavior that have repeated themselves over and over again, and uh, tried to show how the Internet also displayed the same economic archetypes. So I guess the most obvious examples of when it did uh, display the economic archetypes would be just the, the bubble at, at the end of the 90s. And you yeah. give the example of uh, Webman. Uh, so that's definitely a case where people were <laughs> quite delusional and that the business model uh, pretty clearly did not work at that time period. Yeah, I didn't make up the rule that revenue must cover cost. Uh, this is a, this is a, a pretty old rule. Uh, Webman happens to be an example to illustrate a broader pattern that was uh, on display in uh, enormous amounts of uh, ridiculous glory in the late 1990s. Um, a number of firms uh, had uh, business plans and strategies that necessarily deferred the uh, accumulation of revenue or any revenue plan whatsoever. Um, uh, as a business, uh, firms don't uh, accumulate revenue unless they're providing a service that has value to its users. This is a pretty basic, uh, pretty basic uh, a feature of a good business. Uh, and it, it's just remarkable when you look in retrospect at the business plans of some of the entrepreneurial firms that uh, mistakenly thought they were going to be capable of generating revenue in excess of their costs. Um, sometimes the uh, mistake emerged from Internet exceptionalism of a particularly naive form, um, uh, the belief that uh, the pureplay.com would... Um, replace um, existing businesses wholesale without having to do a, actually a great deal of work. So it's undervaluing what many uh, businesses were already doing. Um, the book actually spends a lot yeah. of time on that. Um, Webbound in particular uh, had a very interesting, made a very interesting set of errors. Uh, uh, their error, if you look back on it, uh, was their business plan presumed widespread adoption in every uh, city in, in which Webvan was deployed. Uh, it, there was no way to cover the operational cost of sending trucks to different locations at high frequency um, unless uh, a large number of users were willing to pay a fee for the delivery and a large number of them close to one another, so the uh, you know the costs of sending the truck out to the neighborhood were deferred over multiple users. That uh, their business plan ultimately uh, depended on that presumption, and that was an extraordinarily optimistic presumption. Yeah, yeah. That to, to give an example. So, uh, as a counterpoint to this, when when I think about a lot of people that uh, talk about internet that have the opinion of internet exceptionalism, they, they, they'll they use uh, Amazon as a counterexample in that Amazon didn't make profits for a very, very, very long time, and yet we think it's a very successful business, and it's obviously one of the most important companies in the world today. So uh, do, you, do you have a viewpoint about 
why kind of Amazon is okay not making profits, but uh, some other companies are not? No, I, I, I think they're, they've been particularly fortunate in being, uh, in, at m multiple times in their history and being able to convince a, uh, a whole range of naive as well as sophisticated investors to allow them to defer uh, their profits. <laughs> it's kind of impressive. Uh, I think looking at them now, in light of uh, their the potentials they're facing now, I, I would actually say that the assessment has a lot of merit. Um, of course, this is now 20 years after their founding. Uh, at the time, actually, I think it was kind of surprising. And then good for them that they were able to take advantage of the leverage and the um, uh, that they were given and the amount of license they were given to spend money uh, without having to show <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, revenues uh, as a direct response for that. Um, the, you know, they grew in the late 1990s uh, in, under the same umbrella as everybody else. I mean, they were held to some pretty severe constraints and benchmarks in the early part of the last decade, just like everyone else. And they did pass uh, those benchmarks. So you've got to give them credit there as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that when pushed, they were able to demonstrate uh, that their costs were lower than their revenues. And they were able to demonstrate that their revenues were growing, and they were able to demonstrate uh, in, in specific forms the way in which they anticipated growing in the future. Uh, they, they certainly did do more than many of the entrepreneurial firms that uh, didn't make it past their first or second year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's clearly an exceptional company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, good for them. Yeah. Uh, um, so, all right. So let's uh, let's uh, start a little bit at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the beginning of the internet. There's this conception that uh, the government had this grand master plan for developing the internet, and then it uh, gave it to the world, and everything was great ever since. So, uh, I'll let you shoot down that that perspective. <laughs> yeah. So, the internet is not the Manhattan Project. That's uh, that's a false archetype. It's often used in public conversation. Uh, it, it's not as if there was a single visionary who uh, foresaw how it all fit together. Um, and, and I think if you speak with people who are involved, they would say so as well. This is just a myth that has worked its way into popular conversation uh, by those who haven't done their homework. Uh, the more, um, if you look more carefully, a more, uh, a more appropriate archetype, uh, the one that I advance in the book is a phrase, in, uh, innovation from the edges. Uh, the, the internet is, uh, a, a arose from the accumulation of multiple contributions coming from multiple uh, firms and participants, each of which come from a, a large different number of places in the economy, bringing with them different sets of assets and different sets of capabilities, and in addition, different perspectives on where the value lies in using this technology. Um, that is a perspective that stresses the commercial motives of those who were building the internet. It's distinct from the perspective that stressed the invention of the internet. Uh, but I think you need uh, a framing that stresses commercialization if you want to understand what happened in the 1990s when most of the relevant innovation and investment are, was coming from commercial actors. With regards to the government, it obviously did something. So yes, uh, there, it did. There, yes. there are two areas that I'd be interested in hearing you talk about. One is uh, 
how was the actual transfer of the internet conducted between uh, the public sector and the private sector? And then the second one is what is the role of antitrust and preventing kind of monopolization of, of the internet? Both of those are pretty big, so let's do them one at a time. Okay. Uh, let's start with the transfer. Transfer is a great topic. Um, uh, an old topic, by the way. Here's another, uh, here's another place where uh, there was nothing exceptional here. There has uh, been longstanding tension uh, between the academic uh, sector of the, of the United States and, say, the world, really, and the commercial sectors um, in how new invention uh, is transferred into commercial use. Particularly, tension arises when invention has near immediate commercial value. Then there are multiple uh, conflicting principles that govern the way to think about that invention. Uh, take the browser, for example, was one such example. Uh, it was both of academic value and of commercial value. If it was purely of academic value, we would say as a society, we want that invention to be widely deployed, used for scientific purposes, and um, uh, used as widely as possible, and we wouldn't really worry about it. If it's going to be used for commercial purposes, then we start to say, as a society, we'd like to see a payback to those who did the invention. Uh, the academic sector of the U.S. doesn't really have a profit motive and therefore is no longer the right um, steward for that technology. It should be uh, transferred into commercial use as quickly as possible and, and let competitive markets do what they're going to do uh, and what they do so well. Th th those are very different kinds of motives. So what happened here is those sort of tensions emerged at multiple times uh, during the commercialization of the Internet, probably first and most saliently when the backbone of the uh, National Science Foundation was privatized and there was a direct conflict between the interest of the uh, university sector, which wanted uh, larger, large-scale use of the backbone in order to reduce costs of setting data uh, across the country. Uh, there was a conflict between that motive and the commercial motives, uh, who wanted to make money, who would, uh, the, the firm, one of the earliest firms to get in on this business, uh, IBM, uh, made an attempt to monopolize the backbone. Uh, they didn't succeed. Um, uh, uh, there were attempts by others to try to corner the market. You know, commercial firms are going to do what they want to do. Um, so, just to clarify, the backbone essentially was the largest data pipe that existed in the U.S. Correct. at the time. And yes. so, if IBM were to monopolize it, it would essentially be able to charge uh, very high prices, thereby li limiting uh, usage of the Internet and the adoption of the Internet by the United States. Correct. And they, at the time, they had a plan to charge... Um, uh, every marginal user at every access point. It, it, you know, it would, it's a nice business if you can get it. <laughs> uh, they, uh, instead, what happened, uh, due to the intervention of a number of players, it's a little bit of a long story. Uh, uh, the phrase I like to use is honest policy wonks. Um, uh, due to the intervention of many um, different kibitzers, uh, if you will, in the larger community, um, the backbone was deployed in such a way as to foster um, 
competitive access markets. Uh, so it was deployed with, um, the, the, uh, it, let me say, the, the National Science Foundation pivoted. <laughs> Their policies changed in the middle of uh, the privatization and um, uh, added to their policies were a set of interconnection points that permitted multiple players in the uh, backbone and access markets of the United States that resulted in competitive access markets uh, in multiple locations. Every major city in the United States became capable of carrying multiple internet service providers and uh, you know that particular transfer ultimately went pretty well. Uh, we got a competitive ISP market. Uh, the thing that most of us remember, the thousands of uh, small Internet service providers all over the place trying to provide Internet access, that emerged uh, off of that uh, successful privatization effort by the National Science Foundation. Now, not everything went well, <laughs> to be clear. Uh, I, I don't think anybody believes the privatization of the domain name system mm -hmm. uh, went particularly well. I didn't have anything new to add to that. Um, that's that's been well documented. Uh, that was uh, privatized as a monopoly initially, and uh, it uh, stayed as a monopoly for quite a few years. Uh, only recently has there been competitive um, competitive forces introduced into the domain name system uh, it, at various points. A bit incrementally, they've been in introduced over time. Uh, but at the, initially, I don't think that was done particularly well. And I think everybody agrees uh, it wasn't done particularly well. It was fortunate. It didn't kill things. <laughs> so w I don't know enough about this, but were the domain names just too ex like really expensive in the 90s because it wasn't done well? N n no. And so initially, um, it was given to one firm. And no, they didn't charge a lot. And I... The suspicion is that because they were really quite worried about attracting too much attention, um, uh, uh, first they were first they got a um, they were giving out domain names for nothing, and and they were getting their compensation through other mm -hmm. means. Um, then they asked for permission to charge six dollars for a domain name, uh, so, which is still a, a you know a pretty small uh, amount of money. Uh, and before it ever went up after that, um, a regulatory framework was put into place that made it challenging to charge more money than that. Um, there were other issues that emerged, uh, especially the recycling of uh, domain names that uh, firms or private players decided they didn't want to use. There were other issues about hoarding, um, you know, a whole range of things. Having one decision maker... Uh, in in the light of all those issues, that's not a good way to do things in a young market. It would have been better to have had multiple uh, perspectives and multiple commercial um, players right from the outset. You know what? We, as I said, yeah. you know, it wasn't optimal, but it wasn't ideal. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it wasn't terrible either. Uh, it, it was a half empty, half full situation, and the internet. Grew in spite of it. It grew pretty well. So it didn't, despite all the complaints people put up about it, uh, I, I have to say, looking back on it, I came to the conclusion that maybe a little bit of the whining is, was overwrought. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one, one thing that you mentioned was just the <coughs> enormous amount of uh, competition in the ISP market. And mm -hmm. one of the things I found 
very fascinating was that the entrance into this ISP market, a lot of them were pre-existing firms that were running these bulletin board services. Yeah. So um, do you think that this is a general phenomenon that potentially happens in other innovative cycles, that there are kind of firms with similar business models that move into uh, this emerging market that uh, kind of create the commercialization? Or is it usually brand new firms that are entering in order to take advantage of the market? Hmm. So there's one part that was durable. Uh, and then there's a the part that's unique. Let's do the durable part um, first. Uh, many technology markets uh, have communities of amateurs in them as, as well as professionals uh, and uh, have in them a variety of what the book calls the wild ducks, uh, uh, even in the professional side of things. Um, uh, those in the markets who have uh, very different points of view who uh, want to use the technology for all kinds of purposes that you, you who would have known. Uh, there are lots and lots of prior examples of technologies with these broad communities of all kinds of thinkers, of their own wild ducks. Uh -huh. That's a really durable characteristic of new technology markets. The radio market, the PC market, um, if you remember citizen band radio, uh, or it's probably even before, uh, you know, any of us were paying attention. Airplanes, uh, uh, aircraft have had this for years. Automobiles always had this as well. Um, electrical markets, electronics, every one of these major techn technological, um, movements have had both professional and amateur, um, communities helping to move them forward. And a number, and these communities have a number of entrepreneurs in them moving back and forth in, into business. That's a very, actually a very, very durable characteristic of technology markets. And, uh, we should remember it's not always the largest firms that are doing some of the most innovative things, although they can be doing innovative things too. Um, now the thing that's unique and particularly unique to the United States in this instance was the particular regulatory approach to mediating potential conflicts between uh, the telephone companies and uh, some of these professional and amateur communities who were doing information services at the time. If you look around the world, that conflict was mediated by governments in a variety of ways. In the United States, there were a specific set of rules about uh, what telephone companies were required to do. Uh, and those rules had been designed uh, some years earlier for a large number of these bulletin board services. Uh, uh, it, you know, some of them are professional. Uh, LexisNexis today uh, is still a well-used, uh, you know, widely used service. Started as a bulletin board, to, to give an example. And some of these bulletin board services were you know, hobbyists and clubs. Um, some of some of them were the first of uh, what you would recognize today as a, a community um, chat room. <laughs> uh, uh, the Well uh, was a famous one. Um, and uh, this was real time chat, or was it more like a message board? Form? More like a message board, yeah. Because yeah. because the the 
the systems were incredibly slow by present standards. Um, although, boy, they sure tried to make them turn them into chat rooms as quickly as they could, as quickly as the um, the telephone systems could handle it. Uh, uh, yeah, and then you know some of them were doing um, some pretty borderline uh, uh, salacious activity as well. Um, you know, pir as, as sometimes say piracy and porn. Um, there's always been a community uh, at the edges of uh, information technology uh, who's um, who you wouldn't want to bring home to mom, uh, and uh, that that was going on as well. Yeah, hmm. and. So these communities, uh, these communities are the ones that brought us internet service providers. So I find being true to the phenomenon, uh, they all collectively did not have the same point of view. They had very, very different points of view. Um, so this is the part that's durable and also unique. The United States ultimately protected these communities. The rules... Uh, designed to uh, mediate the conflicts between these communities and, and telephone companies helped these uh, communities, helped them survive as bulletin board services. And when the Internet commercialized, many of them showed up uh, and said, hey, uh, here's an opportunity. I could be an Internet service provider. And you interview them. You know, they came from all kinds of different points of view, uh, the model for the internet, the dial-up internet service provider emerged relatively quickly. Um, they were all talking to one another on, uh, you know, on their own bulletin boards, and very quickly that model spread. And within a very short period of time, it was pretty clear how to run one of these businesses, and that spread all around the United States. So, at the same time, this industry followed a similar pattern. That in the beginning, there was a lot of entry. And then there was shakeout and a lot of consolidation. Correct. So uh, what was the impetus for the consolidation? Was, uh, were these other tech companies that decided to get into the game and buy up everyone? Or did just some people do <laughs> ISP better than, than well, others? Well, there were attempts at every, yeah, there were attempts to buy out. Uh, most of those didn't work out so well. Uh, there were attempts by America Online. Um, to dominate through a marketing uh, campaign. That was perhaps the most successful thing um, that anybody attempted. Uh, American Online, arguably by the end of the millennium, provided uh, approximately half of the Internet service provi provision in the United States. Um, yeah, I'd say half is what most observers were estimating. They had an extraordinary sales campaign uh, at one time, they were buying up most of the CD-ROMs in the world, <laughs> imprinting AOL uh, sales material on it, and uh, dropping it in newspapers and putting it on your doorstep. Uh, that uh, you know that, that that turned out to be one of the more successful ways to consolidate the industry. Uh, uh, you know, the book doesn't talk about it much. It just the the beginning of the broadband um, deployment starts at the very end of the book. Uh, that's that's ultimately. Um, that ultimately replaces a lot of the dial-up firms in the in the following decade. Um, many of them were content to be local providers. You have to remember that not not all of them wanted to be <laughs> national providers. Many of them 
were operating their dial-up service as a secondary business on top of what they were already doing, which was uh, maintaining local area networks or being the PC provider for their city um, and, and other activities like that. And so uh, many of them were content just to, to, to operate their ISP in a, in a county or a couple counties. There's still some, some level of that going on on the Internet today. I mean, when we yeah. think about Craigslist and... Craig, yes. Craig's lack of willingness to actually push the frontier in uh, any of the things that he's doing. <laughs> yeah, and and he's still doing fine. So yeah. you know, all the power to him. Yeah, there. Uh, actually, there's a tension. Um, it, I do talk a little bit about it in the book. There's a tension between the earliest movers and um, some of the later firms who show up to commercialize uh, with the intent of driving down costs and uh, mm-hmm. branding and standardizing the business if you will, turning the internet into McDonald's. And there's, there's a great deal of resentment from some of the earlier, um, earlier more entrepreneurial pioneers uh, that some of their efforts resulted in, in those kinds of businesses. I, you know, that's a pattern we've also seen many times in history. I, uh, it just is what it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, all right. So let's move on to another topic that... Uh, the book spends a lot of time talking about, which is browsers. And there are two things that I want to get to. Uh, uh, the first one is uh, the different strategies in commercialization of university innovations and how uh, the University of Illinois uh, missed out on the, on the great uh, browser <laughs> bonanza. And then uh, secondly, uh, the, the, the competition or the lack of competition between Microsoft and, and uh, Netscape. Yeah. yeah, we can start with the browser. That's an example that um, gets at that core tension between the different missions of a university when it has a big invention. Um, <laughs> you know, the browser is a wonderful example for many purposes. Uh, first of all, it's not the primary purpose of the uh, institute from which it comes. Uh, it's one tool uh, that um, the NCSA at the University of Illinois uh, was looking to fund and develop for purposes of helping others use their supercomputer. Uh, and like a lot of um, university institutes, it employed scores of people doing a whole range of different projects. Uh, from the viewpoint of the management, it's impossible for them to know which of these will, will turn out to be the most valuable um, you know, plans are made to be broken. <laughs> uh, 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 but w- one of the wonderful characteristics of the U.S. university system is that it puts uh, money in the char- it puts money in the front of talent and asks the talent to work on interesting problems. And sometimes the unexpected emerges. So that's what happens at the University of Illinois. And then then we get the interesting conflict. <laughs> Unexpectedly, one of your a small team of researchers has uh, invented something that has high value in commercial markets. It's clearly also got high value in um, university applications. Uh, and the the key thing, it's funny in retrospect. The key thing that um, Eric Bina and Mark Andreessen did was to make a browser for the Windows operating system. Kind of remarkable in retrospect that it had not occurred to others. There was one other effort to do that about the, at the same time. 
but they were the first to get it widely deployed, a Windows-based browser. And so just to clarify, browsers existed beforehand, and it was just that most technical users were using uh, Unix-based systems? Correct. Yeah, and uh, and also um, uh, uh, some of the prior browser um, designers just didn't put much effort into deployment. They didn't care. They they were writing these for their own use or for a couple of their friends. Um, and the NCSA, as partly as its mission, well, uh, cared about widespread use. So it put a lot of effort and money into uh, taking suggestions and uh, improving the browser um, as uh, more suggestions came in to, uh, you know, some of this is Andreessen himself, <laughs> that that he just seemed to have cared a great deal about uh, widespread use and had recognized that if you paid attention to what the suggestions others were sending you over email, maybe they had a good idea and you might do something with it. Uh, so th there was some of that as well. Um, and uh, anyway, we got into this situation uh, where uh, the browser is clearly valuable. It's had millions of ad adopters within universities. And the University of Illinois then was faced with a question of what to do. <laughs> it did what was normal at the time, which is it started a licensing program. Um, it, it had that uh, managed by a third party. Again, not a crazy thing to do. Pretty normal at the time. Um, and uh, and the university at some level let the third party make the key decisions. Uh, what's funny about that is it's, that's, uh, it, it vested a property right in the browser. And then that came into conflict with the other mission the university had, which is to get it into widespread use, um, uh, potentially because the uh, licensing of the browser is, um, is going to uh, you know, come at a cost and at a price. Uh, well, so where the conflict really emerged is when the team who'd done the browsing went off and started their own business. Um, the uh, university, um, the university's third, um, uh, gosh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the company. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember. Yeah, either, I got to look at the book. Yeah. yeah, but it was essentially a company that was local to the University of to, Illinois uh, that yeah. developed software. That's our software. Yeah, yeah, they were Chicago-based. Um, okay. Um, you know, they wanted to retain the um, name Mosaic, and uh, Andreessen and Jim Clark had named their little entrepreneurial startup at the time the Mosaic Communications Company. And so they had a fight over the use of the trademarked name. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a fight over trademark is not going to make a huge difference to a firm. It's just a pain in the neck. Uh, but it uh, illustrates the broader conflict between um, uh, different commercialization strategies. So Mosaic Communications Company changed their name to Netscape. Uh, and uh, they... Uh, reprogrammed their browser so they could not be sued uh, and uh, stopped talking to the University of Illinois. And at some level, this, this is not in either party's interest. This was, uh, meanwhile, uh, at the same time, uh, the browser, uh, Mosaic browser gets licensed to uh, Microsoft uh, uh, for $10 million and um, some other, some other provisions. And uh, uh, it saves Microsoft an enormous amount of time and effort. Uh, and so we get this outcome, which is ironic in retrospect, that the same university that spawned uh, the invention um, 
spawned the two players who end up competing with one another. One of those players uh, is born through the programmers themselves leaving the university. The other uh, gains access through a license that's comparatively cheap and inexpensive. And, and, and so we get the beginning of uh, the browser wars that way. And I guess the one interesting part of that is that uh, as is played out many times in the software industry, the people that actually wrote the original software are just way better at doing the software than whoever is going to buy up the property and try to improve it. And so the Netscape product was way better than the Mosaic product for a very long time and obviously also better than the Internet Explorer that arose out of that uh, by Microsoft. Yeah, 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 that's correct. Um, and the other thing that happens in this example that's uh, often not appreciated is that this, the servers that the browsers are uh, um, communicating with also comes from the NCSA. Um, uh, it, it, it deploys through shareware and eventually becomes the Apache server and becomes widely available through open source, which uh, undercuts the server... Um, um, undercuts commercial server software that both Microsoft and Netscape had tried to deploy and sell. Uh, and, and eventually the shareware software for free is the one that uh, ends up being used everywhere. And both of the browsers end up communicating with uh, Apache servers everywhere. Yeah, so it's this uh, weird mix of university and government and, and open source. And open source yeah, yeah, it is a funny mix, yeah. Now, you know, if you want to say anything about the uh, internet was uh, unique, it's that mix. It's the uh, important role that open source ends up playing uh, in a, in commercial events. If if anything, there's the there's the place where uh, you have a new archetype. Um, if 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 anywhere. Well, I mean, just to push back on that, I think one other distinguishing feature of the internet is. Uh, much lower entry costs. Uh, compared to a lot of technologies historically, I would say that um, be because software doesn't require any physical capital, a lot more people can participate in, in production. Yeah, that's fair. Um, that's a fair comment. Uh, you, you would ha to see something similar, you have to go back to examples like machine tools. And you know, it wasn't that hard to become a machinist or uh, back in the day when machine tools were first being developed for automobiles and bicycles and, uh, and sewing machines, uh, you know, in one of the classic examples. Uh, uh, but, yeah, you know, but, you, but you're, you're right. Uh, it, to be fair about it, it, it the, the entry costs were quite low. And, and arguably on a comparative level, lower than anything we had seen before. Yeah, and I, and I guess also with the combination, the entry cost being low and the marginal cost being low as well, right? So, you know, even if you could uh, build your own machine pretty cheaply back in the day, uh, making a lot of them would have still been extremely expensive for you. Yeah, that, I, I, here's the sense in which I agree with you. Software has this property that you can replicate it at almost zero cost. And so it, you can make a million copies or... 10 of them, whatever number you want, um, at almost no cost. Uh, and that is, comparatively speaking, uh, a, a new characteristic. Um, the, the reason I'm cautious in saying that's entirely new is in a packaged format, uh, as, as any of the packaged software firm will tell you, uh, the soft, making the software 
uh, is not the only thing you need to spend money on. You have to spend a lot, a great deal of money on uh, marketing and support and other complementary services to keep the software valuable and in operation. So you don't want to be too narrow in the way we look at it. And then the second thing uh, I might say about um, about this, just to be, again, real precise, is the software resides on top of an enormous network that's operating as well. Uh, and one of the characteristics of the internet was uh, the importance of these specialists. You could, as an entrepreneur, write your software, make it work with the browser, and you did not have to worry at all about the um, sending the data across the country. Somebody else was taking care of that. Um, so some of the reasons the costs were so low to the software writers was because the Internet had this structure that permitted the growth of all these specialists. Yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely a good point, and it, and it's a public good, right? And yeah, it had it, yeah the um, the governance of the TCP/IP and World Wide Web both uh, permitted um, anyone to use the protocols um, without restriction on what they were uh, used for. So, uh, continuing on with this uh, example of the browser, uh, the next thing that happened, of course, is that Microsoft. Uh, realized that they were behind uh, Netscape and tried mm -hmm. to prevent them from succeeding in the market. So uh, I'd like to talk about two things. One is what actually did Microsoft do in order to prevent Netscape from becoming successful? And uh, second of all, uh, what was kind of the long-run legacy of this battle and the subsequent antitrust case, which... Uh, almost broke up the entirety of Microsoft. Yeah, so I, I, you know, there are two antitrust cases that play a role in the internet. The first one's the AT&T <laughs> breakup, and the second one is the Microsoft uh, uh, antitrust case. Um, uh, and uh, both of those, I, I thought I had to give both of those uh, a lot of attention, uh, partly because I thought the uh, links between antitrust and uh, commercial behavior are largely not appreciated. So that's why I gave them a lot of attention. Um, in, the, in Microsoft's case, there were a couple things they did that were perfectly legal. And, and had they stuck to only that, it would have not been an issue. There, um, there was nothing wrong with having uh, additional functionality put in the browser. There's, you know, there's nothing illegal about putting a thousand people in the division that was working on it. If they wanted to spend a lot of money investing it and outspend their rivals, there's nothing illegal about that. Users benefit from it. Um, uh, is sometimes um, uh, attention is paid to integrating the browser with the operating system as something that was a uh, foul. Or uh, and and again, I, I really have to come down on. No, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah, there's nothing in antitrust law that prevents a user from adding additional function. Uh, sorry, that there's nothing in antitrust law that prevents a firm from adding additional functionality to its products. I mean, and that's see, in users' interest. That's okay. <laughs> it I has mean, to be okay. I mean, we see that all the time today in, on smartphones, where yeah, it, the company that's producing it is going to put their own proprietary software on it and presumably the reason for that is to improve the user experience for for those users yeah i mean i think popular conversation at some level um 
focused on this because Microsoft did it in such a brazen way. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's just nothing illegal about it. Uh, let's, let's just say that. Um, uh, where would you worry about um, this kind of behavior? You'd worry, um, if you were thinking about antitrust, about whether um, distribution channels were being closed down. So because Microsoft has an interest in uh, their, their own browser and their own uh, operating system, you would worry as an antitrust lawyer about whether Netscape has access to the same open distribution channels. That's where a lot of the antitrust case did focus on behavior by Microsoft's uh, lawyers to put things into their contracts that then made it challenging for Netscape to deploy its browser. Um, that's a pretty straightforward and old antitrust concern. There's nothing particularly novel about it in this context. So just to clarify that, uh, what we're talking about is whether Netscape comes pre-installed uh, with a computer that Correct. people buy. I mean, people could always download Netscape for Correct. free anyway. Correct. But just that initial you know, seeding of this product, which has probably some network externalities, uh, and preventing that from occurring is a huge competitive advantage for Microsoft. Yeah, and, and the, the, uh, the, the precedent that, again, concerned the court were things like um, Microsoft leaning on um, HP Compaq uh, pretty directly with threats uh, about the behavior they were showing uh, towards uh, Netscape. That's the kind of behavior that an antitrust court worries about. There's, again, nothing wrong with Microsoft trying to sell its products. Um, what's concerned is Microsoft would send these letters to Compaq that were, were uh, threatening um, and uh, uh, threatening um, Compaq on the way it was trying to sell its products. There's these wonderful quotes from HP about how um, it was spending, a, uh, it wanted to put some help screens up in, uh, to help its users. I mean, help screens, come on, you know, yeah. uh, help screens. And Microsoft forbid it because it helped Netscape. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's just over the top. Um, uh, there were additional concerns uh, about things like Java. Um, uh, uh, Microsoft made it rather difficult uh, for Java to be deployed um, on the operating system. Again, my, my own view had always been that um, uh, I, I, you know, most of this stuff never gets very far. <laughs> uh, and um, competition on the merits eventually is a really good thing for everyone. And so I, I take the position having, I felt like I was obligated as someone who was looking at this. I took the position that competition on the merits did not take place here. Uh, and that, that in retrospect, that was a, a serious concern and one worth, um, worth having in any trust case about. Okay. So that, you know, I had, you know, actually it was kind of interesting because you have to decide that after the fact, uh, looking at the, uh, looking at the record. I have to know, I mean, I know a lot of uh, people who were involved on both sides of this case. Um, I also came to the conclusion, although I didn't really stress it in the book, um, that Microsoft probably would have won in the long run. <laughs> uh, I mean, my God, they were just throwing resources at it like crazy. Um, 
and they had and they did eventually catch up. I mean, they were functionally equivalent within about two years. And then they and, lost again. And then and then yeah, and then we get to the kind of interesting part again. It's not really the focus of the book. Um, uh, what happens in the in the most recent decade? Uh, uh, I, I just hint at it. I'm certainly I've written about it in other work. Um, Microsoft puts Internet Explorer uh, inside of its operating system division. Um, that uh, the, therefore the Explorer programmers have to report directly to uh, others in the operating system division. They don't like that. Uh, their priorities get um, they don't get as much attention, and um, eventually many of them quit. Um, and uh, I, you know, we saw the consequences later in the decade when um, Firefox reemerges as a viable alternative. Internet Explorer gets a lot of complaints from uh, the developer communities because it's not getting much attention. A lot of problems that used to be fixed really quickly because Microsoft's a very, very good company at responding to its network and its uh, ecosystem and the complaints in its ecosystem. They weren't responding to complaints. There, something went, uh, you know, uh, something changed to, to have that happen. And uh, you know you can see some traces of that in the book, but it's it's not the primary uh, focus of the book to trace that all. Other people have al already written about that. So uh, now I just want to move on to some more like forward-looking questions or oh, that's fun que questions yeah. that are uh, relevant <laughs> to today's uh, today's environment. So one thing, just uh, continuing forth on this uh, antitrust, uh, one pattern that we see a lot of now, and I guess we also saw it in the '90s, was uh, large tech companies acquiring in, uh, up uprising companies. So think about Facebook acquiring both Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, do you think that this is a potentially anti-competitive action? Is it harmful to have this level of, uh, I guess, concentration due to acquisitions going on without letting these networks fully develop into large companies themselves? Well, first, I'm not going to comment on any specific. Okay, fair <laughs> you know, enough. Just to be clear, um, uh, but I'll say this about antitrust law: antitrust law, if you read it carefully, does not include in it concerns about um, the antitrust about variety of perspectives or variety of capability. It's there indirectly, where um, the antitrust guidelines talk about potential for new entry. Um, or, um, and talk about uh, unhindered distribution channels and concerns that um, mergers could change distribution for competitive products. So it's there indirectly. Um, but uh, I, one of the things I walked away from this experience with a uh, that's different. Um, the antitrust laws often are not singularly, but primarily focused on fostering multiple competitors for the purposes of reducing prices to users. And I walked away from this example more focused on the dangers of consolidation, not necessarily for the, uh, the reduction or non-reduction of prices, rather the dangers of consolidation for reducing the ability of distinct points of view from having the ability to reach users and uh, get their fair market test. 
and particularly in evolving markets or in uh, settings in which uh, techni technical opportunities uh, allow for a variety of different perspectives on where the value lies and where we don't and where it's not clear even to the experts where the value lies markets have a very important role to play in allowing um, different firms to show up and experiment and and in the market offer different services and users choose among them and we get to watch as a society uh, what users prefer and uh, it's only a fool would anticipate uh, how um, some of those competitive sets situations are going to turn out so what i i walked away with was uh, an increasing appreciation for this role that markets play in permitting variety to bloom I, i'm not going to go so far as to say letting a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i mean it's a little too cliche um, but allowing for multiple points of view to have a realistic uh, uh, chance to put their services in front of users. And so the concern that happens when we have a small number of platforms is uh, that it, it potentially could lead to less variety. Yeah. So, um, so what, I mean, one thing, it's not just uh, less variety necessarily. You can think about this as uh, competing institutions where variety is like one way to think about it, but more mm -hmm. it's just... Uh, there are different ways to organize society, if you will, and uh, yeah, unless, I agree. unless yeah. we see which one is the best, um, uh, we might get stuck in an inefficient um, equilibrium, if, if you will. Um, and, well, well and to, to give an example, platforms can be organized in a variety of different ways with different governance structures. This is also something I've become interested yeah. in. Is again comes out of the same uh, lessons from this book. So you, it's actually good that we have both Android. And Apple, they they govern their. For example, just to use an example, uh, because they govern their platforms in different ways. And who's to say ahead of time which of those is better? We should have the variety. Uh, who knows? Um, yeah, and so that's that's another way to think about the value of avoiding too much consolidation. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is, for example, with Facebook, although it's acquired. Um, these other networks, they're kind of letting those networks be as is, at least for now. So although those networks have been acquired, they're kind of that form of governance or like the form of the Instagram platform and the form of the WhatsApp platform still exists to, that, to this day. And the users that prefer that form factor can still be using it. I mean, they might now feel less comfortable using it because Facebook is a giant corporation that might have ulterior motives, but at the same time, uh, at least for now, the functionality is there. Yeah, I, I agreed. I, I mean, to be fair about it, it's um, you, you want to be careful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't want to say uh, you don't want to make uh, statements like this out of context. Uh, uh, it's easy as an outsider in any given situation to say, "Oh, it looks like a monopoly there." But uh, again, I, I mean, I know from experience, when you look more carefully, sometimes uh, the most monopolized situation is not monopolized. And so you, you have to be, I, I want to be careful. Not, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not this rabble-rousing, monopolies everywhere kind of guy. I recognize that um, uh, it's, a, it's a rare situation where that happens. Um, and from the viewpoint of society, um, it's better... <laughs> 
if firms and CEOs know in advance that once they reach a dominant position, uh, they have a, an obligation to society to not uh, close down distribution. It'll be tempting for them to do that. Uh, uh, they have an obligation to let small firms experiment uh, and not step all over them. Again, they'll be tempted to do that and just ignore uh, others. Uh, and uh, it's actually cheaper for us as a society just to have uh, well-behaving dominant firms than having to bring any trust cases. Um, and so if the concern is understood and, and uh, vocalized, uh, I, I actually think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about how to think through uh, concretely what it would, would be like to think about fostering uh, more variety. I think if you actually read the um, legal opinions, um, this theme is there also. Uh, though it um, it isn't drawn out as a separate theme, and and uh, and and again, one of the things I walked away with from the book was, huh, that that deserves more thought. Um, you know, those of us who think about uh, good ways to organize technology markets. Uh, okay, uh, and now kind of the last question: Are there any technological stacks today that you think are reminiscent of the internet uh, in, the, in the early 90s? Uh, well, certainly the internet of things, big data, uh, you know, I'll go out on a limb and say even automated automobiles, you know, the, the, the cars. Look at all three of those. Um, each one of those in practice means different things in practice. Internet of things, of course, means a variety of different things in the factory than it means in a home. Um, uh, that one's got a lot of the same characteristics, though. Uh, to, for example, there are fights today over the standards. Uh, that is, um, ways of coordinating the behavior of multiple firms who together deliver the service. Um, there's also fights in um, automated cars, autom automobiles today, for who's going to put together the platform or platforms that will uh, determine the standards and the standard operation of an autom automobile when a user takes its hand hands off the steering wheel. Um, th that that's got a very similar. That looks very similar to the kinds of fights that were happening in the early so, part of the internet. So you're talking about a software provider coming in to, let's say, you know, a Toyota. Correct. And, and, oh, yeah. And uh, put it, installing its software and saying, uh, my software can control this car to drive itself. And the question is, what is the language by which that software you know, tells the car what to do? Right. And is an open source or proprietary. Um, you know, it's not an accident. Some of the European car makers... Uh, are unwilling to cooperate with uh, the Google car um, effort uh, because they're worried about uh, giving up proprietary rights. Um, and some automobile firms are willing to cooperate, uh, but with uh, you know certain provisions about what the rights they retain and don't retain. Yeah. That looks just, that you know, this shouldn't be a surprise. That looks just like something we've seen before. Um, Internet of Things is a little more diffuse because it means different things in different contexts, uh, but it, it's a similar sort of fight. Big data has some different characteristics. Big data has already gone into deployment. <laughs> you yeah. know, we're past the point of a, uh, in a, in a number of the deployments, um, 
of determining standards. There are standards in a lot of the uses now. So um, what, what standards are you talking about? Oh, like an, an Oracle database is, oh, is okay. as good as a standard at this point for some, uh, for some purposes. Uh, uh, Hadoop mean, is a different one, right? That's a going, coming off of a, a very different way of organizing um, applications for large-scale um, uh, uh, data analysis. So to give you to give you an example, but, but I think but I think a difference in the big data context is that that there are a lot of competing st standards. I don't see yeah, yeah I don't yeah. see consolidation like we see maybe with the no no I agree with that yeah yeah I'd say the competition in big data today is more on the application side, um, uh, sort of at a later stage, yeah. comparably later stage uh, to to what was happening a lot of part of the nineties in the internet, and that's a it really interesting different kind of competition that's competition for at uh, what I, the book talks about adaptation it's a uh, competition to find valuable uses for different users in different contexts big data looks like it's at that point different firms are trying to um, offer services that tailor the same general purpose uh, technology to the specific needs of a user whether it be for human resources, uh, sales targeting, um, you know, uh, uh, operating, um, materials handling, um, you, you name it, right? Those are different yeah. applications. Those vary by industry, by, by uh, end market, um, by type of labor force. It, it you know, varies a lot. Um, that's, that's adaptation. That, that looks just like that. So uh, just as a I know, bigger picture, picture question, do you view the whole big data machine learning stack as a new general purpose technology yeah. that is distinct from the internet yes that came before yes it? Yeah. yeah 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 the uh, yeah i do um perhaps that's over overstated too but i yeah i i think of it as some uh as something different there i i have to admit i think of it as big data 3.0 uh you know because uh there was the 1.0 with uh a big data uh that everybody remembers from 40 years ago which is when the airlines for the very first time tried to think through what do you do with such a huge reservation system mm -hmm. uh and then there were um, sort of 2.0, if you will, that's mixed into the deployment of the internet has to do with things like the large logistics applications that, uh, UPS and FedEx were putting into play, um, and using the web as an additional service, um, to, to make their large databases more valuable. Um, uh, think about the catalog companies who have always had big data, it, you know, yeah. as big as anything will allow them to do. And then again, going online with electronic commerce front ends that are looking for new valuable adaptations of what they were previously already doing, which was you know, supporting a huge number of SKUs, yeah. uh, a huge number of products. Amazon, after all, is another version of the very same thing. But I think... The difference here is that the the previous two waves, one, the first one I would say is probably accessing information within the firm. The second one is yes. giving access to database information to external users of the firm. Correct. Uh, and then this current one, it's not querying necessarily information, but it's using that information in a predictive role, whether that be yeah, an it uses there's some algorithm involved, right? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And and the range of application for that is pretty enormous. It's the most visible one is targeting of ads. 
Yeah. Uh, but that, that there's multiple, there's many, many more applications than just that. Uh, yeah. So I'd agree with you on that. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there are plenty more things that I would like to talk to you about, but uh, I think uh, your time is expiring. So uh, <laughs> thanks so much for uh, coming on uh, the show, Shane. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope uh, others enjoy reading the book. Thanks for listening. And if you liked the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes.